Hey everybody, welcome to We've Got Ward, the Daily Planet Productions podcast series where we expertly dissect and, and discuss Ward, Wildbow's return to the world of parahumans. My name is Matt Freeman and I am your host. And to summon my co-host, all I have to do is think about him and he will be here. Hello, Matt. <laughs> Noises. As you said, this I realized when I wrote that I didn't put my name in it, so nobody knows who I am. I'm Scott. Hi. Um, as you said, this is the podcast where you and I eagerly dive into Wildbo's world of shady real estate agents, severe mother issues, and alien-based death powers as we analyze and interpret this novel. This week, we are finally wrapping up our coverage of Arc 4 Shade with chapters 4.7 and 4.C. Um, I know that... There are technically two chapters out right now as we record for the next arc, but we thought this was a pretty good breaking point um, because after we do that, we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about arc four as a whole, uh, what we thought about it, what we thought the, the trends of the arc is, and, and, the, and the major movements of the story that happened through this arc. So we will be jumping in to arc five next week with probably probably a very long episode, Matt, because it's going to be four chapters. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's fine, though. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's it's uh, you know it'll it'll be better for us to experiment with changing up the pace like this. I agree because I think uh, we'll we'll get into that later. Um, this this week we had a lot of exciting stuff happening in these two chapters though, Matt. Another couple of dense chapters. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I, I think somehow we're going to manage to talk for two hours about two chapters today. <laughs> um, if I were to predict, I think I think that's a safe assumption. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, some another great rain interlude and another uh, great great Victoria chapter. Yeah, yeah. Um, I uh, we will get into this um, at the end of the at the end of the the episode today. But I really like structurally how this arc was doled out to us, and I think that's really exciting. Yeah, yeah. I guess maybe it, it would make sense for us to save the sort of higher level discussion for the end when yeah. we can talk about the whole arc. I I agree. Yeah. So yeah, this week we have uh, no particular uh, announcements um, with respect to we didn't got Ward, our our uh, recurring section where we admit our mistakes. Uh, Scott said stack overflow when it was really integer overflow. Um, Scott, would you like to address this uh, <laughs> yeah, for everyone? I, we, I we really need your uh, thoughts on this. I wasn't going to acknowledge this at all because I honestly I don't really care what kind of overflow <laughs> it was. But like so many of you emailed me or messaged me on our various platforms that I felt like I had to at least at least put a mea culpa out there that <laughs> I said the wrong type of overflow. And so so I, this is me acknowledging you. Yeah. All right. Good. Good. Let's move on. And that was we didn't got Ward. Yeah, that was we didn't got Ward. So so community spotlight this week where we read uh, what people wrote from last week's thread and if you'll recall, the discussion question from last week was, uh, what would be a good way to structure a legal system around the existence of superheroes and supervillains? Um, and we got a, a number of great uh, great answers kind of all over the place in terms of perspectives and, and, and what people were prioritizing, very thought-provoking. So we'll just go through these and talk about them uh, kind of briefly, br very, very briefly in some cases, summarizing what people were saying. So Googleplex Byte. Uh, essentially says that the obvious question here is, should there be secret identities? Uh, especially especially interesting considering our main character in this story doesn't get to have one. 
Um, basically, the idea being that capes shouldn't be allowed to have secret identities, and then that allows the authorities to keep track of them better. And, and that really changes the picture in terms of policing the capes. And yeah. Google Googleplex Byte is w- one of many who draws parallels between um, what the what the laws for capes could be like and what gun laws are like in, in the real world. Yeah, which was a, a thing I obviously didn't think about myself, but I think is very fitting, especially considering what the national conversation around those laws is right now. But um, that is an interesting aspect of it that that I mean being being a cape is certainly could be seen as one of those unalienable rights that because you can't control that and uh, we're going to get into some other people I think some some answers talk about how this aligns with X-Men and the idea of mutant registration and like that was always seen in the X-Men comics as as like um, a a metaphor for how we control and enact racist or sexist or any kind of ist policies against a certain segment of people. But there is a certain amount of common sense to it when you have people that can end the world by blinking if they want to. Um, you need to find a way to control that. Yeah, that's right. In, in X-Men, it was always a metaphor for persecution, but there's, there is a trade-off to be made here. And uh, yeah. I, I think the way they dealt with things on bet was certainly not optimal by anyone's lights. So no, no. So next comment from koalas, uh, this, this comment was, was interesting. It sort of took a real politique, uh, approach to things pointing out the, well, on the one hand, the, the need of the state to be able to enlist the firepower of the capes for, you know, war, like specifically in the case of what, what Gimmel is facing right now, the need to enlist the capes for, you know, defensive war against um, Earth C, and also this idea of whatever your laws are, they have to be enforceable. So you may have to sacrifice, you know, how you would like things to be in favor of what you can actually enforce. And then uh, Koalis is also one of many people who who point out that um, the the intrinsic shard conflict drive is one of the main things that makes it difficult to establish any kind of of, of really kind of acceptable system because you not only it's not it's it's even worse than x-men frankly because with x-men it was just yeah these people have powers with with parahumans it's these people have powers and they (laughs) are compelled to use them in violence all the time yeah and there is there is this this certain push and pull between the idea of safety and the idea of personal liberty like like we just talked about before these people didn't decide to be capes it was just something that happened to them so how does a society balance the safety of everyone at large with the individual rights of a person who didn't decide to be this way and there there is going to have to be some compromises there and some of them might not be like ethically good yeah i mean we have to make all kinds of strange sacrifices and compromises right. in, in politics all the time like that's what politics is it's right. practically means compromises um i will say you know not, not to go down a, a tangent but cauldron capes did actually choose their powers generally except for the case of c3s and uh and so there's even more of a case for holding them responsible for being lethal weapons because they chose to be that way that's an interesting point yeah yeah I agree with but, that. But that's the minority, so yeah. your your point remains. And how do you 
I mean, they were tattooed at one point, but I think in the end, that yeah. ta- that well, no, not even the the, bo- the ones that bought it weren't tattooed, right? It was just the case fifty threes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So Jacob forty two um, points out that Earth Gimel is actually better off than Bet was because they're not beholden to the old structures of law, and they they point out how you know you're <laughs> in in the United States you would be you'd be stuck trying to like reinterpret certain amendments to, to, you know, apply uh, like digital privacy or weapon modifiers to, to assault charges being expanded to include powers or, you know, weird stuff like this where you're just increasingly stretching an existing body of law. And like, that's one thing Gimel has going for it is they can be like, all right, we're no longer trying to update a 200 year old document We're we're just trying to make laws that work for capes. And, and that's, that's good, but that doesn't necessarily tell us what the solution is. Yeah, I mean, and I think that was kind of when we came up with the question, I think that's what we were thinking about this idea that unlike before, they have a chance to build the structure of law and government around the existence of superheroes and supervillains. And they, they no one in the history of the story has gotten to do that, really, that we know of. So it provides an interesting opportunity to to build a legal structure that that writes them into it and but how do you do that how 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 do you do that in a way that's fair but also safe can you can you even do that and i think some of the answers we got are people just like i don't know if you can i don't even know if you can do that i don't know if it's possible it's yeah. like the whole the whole idea of government is that they are powerful enough to dissuade uh, certain acts and to punish the breaking of a law can we do that if if valkyrie decides to break all laws tomorrow can we stop them i don't know yeah. right there's there's one answer later on that comes the closest to actually answering that question and and it's kind of the harshest but we'll we'll get there get there in a couple minutes um so from velst uh this po- poster recommends very harsh punishment for unregistered powers and harsh punishment harsh punishments in general for any use of power for vigilante violence, even if that person is a hero. So I think that's very interesting because one, you have this this idea that yeah, every every cape has to be registered. You know that that, that is to say, there are no secret identities, or, or maybe if there are secret identities, those people at least have to be state recognized and have their have their real name on file somewhere. And there's no such thing as a vigilante hero anymore. There's 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 only the state empowered heroes. Um, that could go a long way toward helping, but that does remind me that like the whole reason they allowed rogues to exist in the first place was that they realized that if you crack down on rogues, you just create villains. Um, yeah, that's so true. It's one of these things where it's like the, the fact that there are just too many villains makes it difficult. Yeah. I mean, this is probably the one, like this is basically the, the Sokovia Accords answer, right? I mean, like this is specifically what the Avengers were trying to do um, in uh, civil war with the idea of registering and sanction heroes only operating sanctioned by government. Any hero that operates out of government sanction is basically breaking the law and, and will be punished. Right. And I think that makes the most sense to me. And I think this idea of, well, like you're robbing my rights. Like there, like we talked about, there's a trade off. Like you have to be able to say like, I know, I know this isn't your fault that this happened to you. I understand that, but we have to, do we have to do something about it? Like, I'm sorry. Like it, it's, it, it may not seem fair to you, but sometimes that's just the way things work. 
Right. And you can trade off rights with other privileges that right. they get for being capes. I mean, there's there's always something, right? Yeah. Um yeah, so like Macy goes on and, and points out uh that uh, the gun control similarity again and points out that Natalie actually mentioned that some judges view parahumans as permanently armed, uh, which is, you know, which is kind of what we were just saying. And this poster basically sides with the Boulevard Trasks of the X-Men universe um, <laughs> in, in, term, in terms of saying like, yeah, we need to register the, the mutants. Uh, and I, I like this idea that the long, like the only long-term solution would be the removal of powers, which is not something that you hear people talk about very much, um, like as a solution, but it's like, yeah, that would, that would certainly make, you know, just assume, assume that you're in the parahumans universe. Statistically speaking, you would be a, a random civilian. You would not be one of these capes who, who's, who, you know, gets to be a protagonist and gets to have a story be about them. So from that point of view, since the vast majority of people are not capes, if you could push a button in bet and just wipe out every trace of what the entities did to Earth, you'd probably do that without hesitating, actually. <laughs> yeah, I would think so. Like, what good have capes brought to, you know, the multiverse of Earths? None, none that I can really think of. <laughs> hmm, let me Let me think for a minute here. Yeah, no, no, no. Yeah. I think we're, I think we're at a, a net negative here. Yeah, yeah. At the very least, but yeah. I I do I do really like to to echo the gun control argument again. I do really like that this has all the same kind of complications with that, and the idea of you know the the common anti gun control argument is you're you're punishing the law abiding people, right? And I get that, but. I mean, I don't want to get into a whole political gun control debate here on this podcast. That's not what this is about. But but like like we were talking about, yeah, OK, it, it might not be fair, but you you can teleport in my house <laughs> and that's right. dangerous. Like you can go anywhere you want. Um, th- those have consequences and we need to be able to deal with them in a, a civilized way. Yeah, well, I mean, the whole idea of rights it, it exists within a framework of people not having extremely asymmetrical abilities. I think you have to reconsider what that means in a different, in a a very different context. Yeah. So finally, uh, answering the question, Sir Graug uh, writes about a, like taking a more rehabilitative view of justice rather than a punitive one or, or kind of a lock them away in the birdcage view. And they suggest creating a paramilitary organization uh, specifically, uh, sorry, a, a military organization specifically to give outlet for the conflict drive. So basically, you kind of sweep all the capes together into this military organization, and you then aim them at like humanitarian missions, like like putting out wildfires as much as you possibly can. Although, of course, sometimes you're probably going to have to aim them at other groups of people uh, to get their conflict libido satisfied. Yeah. Um, and then the idea, another interesting idea was that the uh, you know um, miscreants would be conscripted and basically forced to cooperate rather than imprisoned. And uh, interestingly, I didn't think of this before I read this, but as I'm reading it right now, it absolutely reminds me of the Yangban uh, in terms of how they handled the problem, uh, where they yeah. basically did this, right? Yeah, that's interesting. I hadn't thought of that. 
And and then of course I was also thinking that this system would work even better if you had uh, Veil Four just tell them to be good uh, every every once in a while. Yeah, I think this answer is the one that kind of turns into the skid the most. Like yeah. this is recognizes the the inherent uh, humanity of people in that we're always going to fight, we're always going to break the law, we're always going to be violent, and turns into that when it comes to people with the power to destroy things very easily. Um, yeah. And I, like while, while, yeah, I think you could say this is kind of uh, not the most pessimistic, but um, the least optimistic <laughs> of, of the answers we got. I think it is possibly the most realistic. Yeah. And I should mention that all of these people gave like two page long answers. And right. We're my, just my summary yeah. may have not really done it justice. So I apologize if I, misconstrued what you were trying to say but but th- there there were a lot of great answers and a lot of great perspectives like i said and, and we, we love reading them so yeah, yeah thanks, yeah, thanks I'm, everybody i'm really digging this discussion question part of the podcast i really like seeing what you guys come up with i think it it, it breeds conversation and it's conversation that's not sp- specific to the book but um elements in the book and the things that the book is is dealing with and discussing so mm-hmm. i think that's that's fun yeah absolutely so other comments, you know, to, to, to shine a spotlight on Mega Fire uh, once again dives deep into a conversation, this time the Natalie slash Carol talk from 4.6. And we really enjoyed these deep dives uh, oh, from, so from Mega Fire. Yeah. Um, Scott, you, you wanted to say something about Carol, didn't you? Yeah, I just so I agree with everyone that Carol is not has is have behaved really terribly in this book so far. I completely agree with that, but I, I am kind of continually stunned by the people that have just decided to completely write her off as a terrible, irredeemable monster, especially in the p- world of parahumans where we've specifically set about to redeem <laughs> terrible inhuman monsters. Um, and like, I keep like there, there's definitely things that you've done that have been, cruel and insensitive and lacking any sort of of appearance of empathy but i we're in victoria's head like we're, we're in the head of a, a of a narrator who has a severe bias um against her mother based on their past and i just i i just don't want us to like get to a point where like if if carol is ever given the chance to come around and improve we just don't acknowledge that that's happening because we've written her off yeah, um, I'm. I I also didn't have the strong visceral negative reaction to Carol that most people do. Um, there there obviously there are some things that she's done that are very that appear very selfish and and sort of cold hearted. But the thing is, like you can very easily I can very easily slip into her point of view, especially because we've been in her point of view before and we kind of know how she thinks. Um, and it it enables me to just kind of see her as a human, which makes it very hard for me to be like super, super angry at her. Um, again, it, it's like, yeah, I, I, I don't disagree that the things she's done are um, like things that I would find objectionable if someone did them to me or things that I would feel terribly guilty about if I did, but I can also understand doing them, you know? Yeah. Like I, tricking Victoria into coming to this family barbecue and confronting her sister was a terrible, awful, disgusting thing to do. 
but I just like I, I this this book is about healing and about you know growth and I I don't know I, I it's hard it's hard to come up with the words here I just like when I see people like no Carol's a monster I'm just like and 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 to to, to clarify Megafire is not saying in his in in their comment that Carol is a monster at all um, they're actually doing a very great job at inspecting what her potential issues could be and exploring what those are. Um, but I just seen a common trend on this and I guess I just wanted to bring it up cause I'm like, this is, this is th- like, as the, the, the next comment we're going to get into, this is a story that intentionally tries to humanize a wide range of people from the worst of the worst of the worst to the chevaliers of the world. And I, I just, I'd hate I'd hate for people to be missing out on the humanization of people because like Victoria's point of view on someone is is making it thing making it seem worse than it actually is. Yeah, that, that's a great point. We 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 always want to maintain that distance uh, where we're we're more analyzing what Victoria is saying and why than just buying her her assessments wholesale. Yeah. So that this being, next that being said, Carol. Stop it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. She can't help herself. So yeah, this next comment by uh Macy or Macy, I'm not sure exactly, uh is is a nice comment uh about the analogy of the fallen to American white supremacist groups operating in the name of the Bible, which exist and are a real thing and kind of seem very similar to the fallen except without superpowers. Yeah. Um, and and this poster goes on to sort of say that yeah, Wildbo wants us to understand how these people become like this. Like that. That's. I mean, that's. And it's not to put words in his mouth, but I kind of agree, and I feel like that's why Wildbo is choosing to write the story this way. Is is we're we're analyzing and coming to understand through the vehicle of Rain, who we understand is someone who is completely trapped in these circumstances. Uh, and only sort of by an extremely rare and bizarre fluke has he shaken them off to any degree. We don't even know to what degree he's going to shake them off. Yeah. Um. That's that's why we're that's why we're seeing this story the way we're seeing it, especially through the point of view that we're seeing it. Right. And and I I liked this particular point where they said Rain got lucky, if you could call it lucky. <laughs> he had an alien dig into his brain and make him see from others' perspectives. Most people don't get that. So it, it's this this terrible, vicious cycle that Rain was absolutely a part of. And he's got an opportunity to escape from it now. And I, I absolutely 100% agree that the, the white supremacist movement in America is definitely being paralleled here. Like, absolutely. And I, I, I am really interested in this idea. Like, we, we've had conversations about how Nazism was portrayed in worm and, and the parts of it that frustrated me versus um, the parts that didn't. Um, but I have learned through the experience of reading that book that, that the point is to see these people from a, a human perspective and you can still find their behavior reprehensible um, and you can still hate them, but you should also understand them. Yeah. Right. I mean, because the only way to avoid becoming them is to understand them is what I always say. I mean, nobody is, nobody is actually born. Well, okay. Some people are born with, with messed up brains, but, but most people who become Nazis are born just happy gurgling babies like everybody else. And 
due to essentially cosmic bad luck they end up where they are and yeah. if you if you don't if you don't pay attention to the world around you and and pay attention to how people become that way then you risk becoming that way yourself yeah i mean absolutely and and i love i love that they brought up the idea of perspective shift because that's something that we've been talking about in this book since the beginning about how our perspective locks us into a certain point of view i mean literally but also metaphorically and how seeing from other people's perspectives, and in Rain's case, literally, literally seeing from other people's perspectives opens up your mind and, and opens up your world. Yeah, that's not a connection I'd made, but I like that a lot. So finally, um, not in one of our threads, but in just a, as a as a top level post in the Parahuman subreddit, there was a really nice review titled Just Finished Worm Posting a Review by someone who had, I believe, just finished Worm <laughs> And was posting a review. It's a really, it's a really detective like like sleuthing there, Matt. <laughs> that was my really assessment good. of the circumstances surrounding the post. <laughs> um, and they said a lot of it was a great it was a great review actually I, I thought and and they highlight specifically one thing uh, the the conflict between what a character wants and what a character needs specifically looking at Taylor in their post. Um, and I think that is something that we touched on kind of glancingly in the course of we've got worm, but we didn't really dive into it. And we certainly didn't talk about it as being a device for creating compelling characters, which is what it is. Um, I don't want to steal this person's thunder, but they talk a lot about how, what, what Taylor needs in the sense of what actually would make her happy, healed, um, centered is, in stark conflict with the things that she wants, the things that she actually pursues, goes after, and kind of aggressively um, acquires. Yeah, yeah. I I really liked this this review, too. There were parts of it that I didn't agree with. Um, There were were interpretations of a few characters, uh, Tattletale specifically, that I, I did not agree with their interpretation, but I think that just goes to show you the great part of art, that that this 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 reviewer captured a lot of structurally what makes worm great and also at that same time still had a completely different interpretation of some of the characters and some of the events than i did um but they were able to articulate those interpretations well so even though i don't agree with them um it was a well-written well-thought-out review it was really good so i think we'll link that for everyone if you if you haven't read it yet yeah you know, I think down in the comments, that poster kind of realized that they had actually misread something and that led to their misinterpretation about Tattletale. And then I think they actually changed their mind on the internet, which is another remarkable thing to observe. Yeah. 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 So that's another great example of why this community is pretty great. Yep. And that concludes our uh, uh, community spotlight for the week. And now All to right. move into the chapters to be discussed starting with chapter 4.7 we cold open on dido i believe it is the the azure cape is it? i always said dido is it i don't know I dido don't know. you know what i think it might be dido i'm gonna go, I'm gonna go with dido i'm okay. calling it uh Marcus. dido is calling andre a property owner in cedar point pretending to be looking into renting some property andre is extremely stressed out by the call and rather brusquely brushes off dido's inquiries um saying you'll turn this place into a war zone yeah um i really liked this cold open as you you astutely called it um and i appreciate how it is written you have this 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 whole conversation is really awkward um it starts off 
awkward and continues awkward. Like I, we set the tone for that awkwardness at the beginning when when it turns out Andre, his name is actually Andrea. Um, and like Dido thinks that she's supposed to be talking to a woman. But no, it turns out Andre Andrea, where he comes from, is a male's name. And this is like this is like a harmless mix up. It doesn't it doesn't mean anything really but it sets the tone for the rest of the conversation that these two people are talking to each other are communicating with each other but are also kind of not because like dido is specifically trying to get a message to someone else um the whole point of this is to send a message to the people at large so she's not really talking to uh andre and andre is just lying the entire time (laughs) so he's not really talking to dido so you're just like this whole conversation is two people just not really talking to each other yeah yeah it's very kind of awkward and intense in a good way where um you you just can feel the tension on, on the line as as andre just is continually so uncomfortable and hangs up as soon as he can yeah uh, the most interesting part to me though is that we see that both victoria and tristan like have decided in the middle of this conversation that dido and 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 is not doing a great job like there's this moment where uh, Victoria, I glanced over at the others and saw Tristan doing the same. His eyes met mine. I wondered if he had had the same thought I did about how Dido's clarification about the name would only confuse people. <laughs> I just thought that was funny. It's like, like Victoria does not like Azure. Like that's that's become very clear based off of how how bad that interview went and how terrible. Um, I forget the guy's name now, but how inappropriate he was with her. Um, and she's not really a fan of them being here and and she kind of seems throughout all this to be looking for ways to pick them apart a little bit yeah yeah well it, and it was kind of funny the the like oh you know blue and gold the yeah. au and what what yeah yeah i mean it did it did like just royally confuse him and i think this is like <laughs> she's she's not talking down when she needs to talk down you know uh-huh. um like <laughs> i don't I, you're absolutely right that that defining what azure means is meaningless for this real estate guy yeah well at least he remembers it yeah well barely yeah yeah well yeah technically he doesn't he has to be prompted but yeah yeah so they they surveil andre as he storms over to complain to prancer about this as they watch they discuss the looming threat of war and they say it seems like things are moving inexorably in that direction that's what dido says and she kind of has an insight into things based on her position Apparently there's a sect, the fourth sect, who want war just so that the sea inhabitants can thin their own population. Dido informs them that a surprising number of powerful people in sea have powers. And uh, a bit after this conversation, Sveta mentions that she thinks Cauldron may have given these people powers. Yeah, which, interesting. That's new Mm -hmm. information for us. Um, But I, I think this is important because this serves to remind our characters and and us that while the misfit toys have been conducting their first mission over the course of this arc that have they've been entering into hollow point and planning around hollow point that things on the, the in the rest of the world and the multiverse have been going pretty badly um we we've, we've got this fourth sect which is now introduced which is surely going to come back in some form or fashion um and and we're also like we're we're setting up like dido is going to like be rude or like perceived rude by Victoria here in a few minutes, but we're kind of setting up why that is because there's this whole world of problems going on while 
uh, the misfit toys are, are hanging out on their little peninsula trying to solve this small problem. Yeah, I mean, it kind of makes my mind go to a comic place where, like, Victoria is still really concerned about Hollow Point and, like, she turns on the news and it's like half of half of Gimmel wiped out in nuclear <laughs> attack. Um, oh, right. But we still got to do this Hollow Point stuff. Yeah. Get, uh, yeah. The most uh, upsetting part of all this for me was Sveta's visceral reaction to hearing all this stuff. She gets angry. She's her tendrils start beating against the inside of her body and she yells at them. And, and, and Sveta is this person who has been good and positive. We talked about at the end of arc two, this, this positivity, this hope for the future that she represented. And this news is not being taken well by her. And it, and it is partially the cauldron news, right? Like she is still at a place even now where the mention of cauldron and the mention of cauldron's meddling still drives her to a point of extreme stress. But, but also like the idea that of war is coming, the idea that, that the, the rosy sunny future where things are going to be better is seemingly like falling from their grasp and she's not, she's not handling it well. Yeah, that's one thing with Sveta we've talked about before, that she really needs to believe that things can continue to get better. Out of everyone, she's the one who, that is her primary coping mechanism, is this sort of always moving forward, getting better physically, getting better mentally, getting better situationally, getting better socially. And I feel like, um, first of all, even for like a person without her, her problems, that's actually kind of a tall order you know you 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 hit rough spots in your life even if you aren't made out of tendrils and uh and this is a particularly rough world so i i I do worry what's going to happen with her when um something bad happens that 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 she's not prepared for right like this this is a new world it's a new opportunity there's there's a new dawn on the horizon this is literally how our our chapter has started but (laughs) But we're in the shade now, Matt. The light has gone out a little bit. And if if things even start to seem like history is going to repeat itself and we're going to to fall back into violence and destruction and death, how is, is her positive worldview going to be able to take that? And if not, then what happens? What happens to her, this person who has a lot of difficulty controlling themselves? And who has killed people out of a loss of control before. Yeah, I guess we'll probably see. Yeah. So Victoria is irritated that Dido refers to their present activities of watching Andre approach Prancer as silliness, which I think is what you were talking about with the yeah, and, being offensive. Sorry, yeah, and and this is really interesting. I want to I wanna touch on this for a minute because I think it's a great window into Victoria's mind right now. Like we were talking about, there is... Um, a, a war on the horizon, a, a whole big drawn out war between capes possibly is, is seeming to break out. And so for Dido, this mission that they're on is like, it's like a vacation. I mean, they're just like this, this is, this is small fry compared to what they, what they are worried about in the macro. So, and, and, and Victoria, like even, even is aware of that. Like she, she's like, she says at, at the end of this rant that like, well, they've got the war to worry about and stuff, but it was still not, it was still mean, 
she could have been a little nicer. And then, okay, it's fine. I'm just going to write her off as a ditz. <laughs> and then I'm done. Yeah. Um, yeah. I like that. I like that little bit of internal cognitive judo right, right. there. Yeah. Well, she's just a ditz, whatever. Yeah. Whatever. I, I'm not going to let this hurt me because she's just a ditch, ditz. But but the most the most interesting thing to me about this rant, Matt, was the word choices because she says we were treating this situation as serious. We were trying to save Cedar point and the people within, and we were trying to break up the criminal organization before it extended its reach too far or imploded with all of our various issues with one team member's life on the line. We were making the sacrifices and devoting ourselves to this in the long term. And I I put a little emphasis on the words that that I, I was calling out because we at the beginning of this arc, we had this whole conversation where um, they questioned whether Victoria was a member. We rain saying that she's not really a member of the group. Um, Tristan said kind of member and Victoria seemed completely fine with that. And then in the last chapter, she was going through this thing where um, she wasn't sure like what her purpose was, what her goal was for this mission. And she came to some kind of uh, understanding that we haven't gotten the chance to get to yet. But here in this moment, it is we. It is our. It is we are devoting this. We are devoting ourselves to this thing long term. I am devoting myself to this thing long term, and that is a change in her. Yeah, that's a great catch. I uh, I didn't notice those, but she's she definitely seems to be taking a lot more ownership here. Yeah, absolutely. Um. Yeah. So. So at this point, uh, Prancer talks down Andre and plays it off as not a big deal. Um, if, if basically if Prancer lets on about being perturbed about anything, it's merely the fact that Andre showed up at the villain bar and made Prancer lose a bit of face. <laughs> but after Andre walks away and uh, Prancer shoots a winning smile at the villains in the bar, we hear him, we hear, what the hell is going on? Prancer's hiss came through the speakers. Yeah. Yeah, look, Matt, their their plan is working. Yeah, they're getting to him. They're twisting the screws. Oh, God, their plan is working. <laughs> oh, no. Um, I really like the word choices of hiss here. Um, because in this moment, this is this is coming through speakers, right? Um, Victoria or uh, Kenzie had to, like, turn up a mic or do or, like, really crank up some electronics to pick up his under his breath whisper. And so it makes sense from literally being an electronic hiss. But also, it's just a hint at the urgency and worry mixed in. Like the, the, those those descripting words on dialogue can do a lot sometimes, and I think that's what the, what it does here. Yeah, it makes him seem just a tad unhinged. Yeah. So afterward, they discuss uh, immediate plans. Uh, Victoria says, as far as info goes, Natalie said someone tried hacking into the warden's headquarters, specifically targeting my mom. Wasn't me, Kenzie said. <laughs> Smelt it, dealt it. Yeah. Um, this this is one of those moments that I do question if this is specifically just a response from Wildbow to the rampant speculation on maybe Kenzie did it, and he's just like, I'm gonna just just gonna throw down this <laughs> and make it clear that that's not where I'm going with this. Um, but it is also interesting that she just offers this up without any prompting at all. Um, I, I don't think Kenzie hacked the wardens i do not think it was her but it does say something about her to assume immediately that people would think it was her yeah yeah no i think i think that's if anything that's more where our heads are supposed to go is, is to say isn't it funny that kenzie would 
automatically be like, oh yeah, people are going to think I did this. <laughs> yep. Which, which is fair. So yeah, next the group heads to meet Rain and Aaron. If you'll recall, we ended last episode with them basically saying Rain and Aaron want to meet us. Let's let's agree to meet them, but not inside the headquarters. So now they're going to do, to do that meeting. As we expected, Rain looks like crap because he's just been beaten by his uncle. And even Aaron looks worse for wear. Victoria is reminded of the bank heist with Taylor and the Undersiders in terms of how this makes her feel. And she thinks, much like Rain stood by the front of the car, hurting, his life in danger, my sister had stood a distance away from me, a knife to her throat. Following that, there had been the revelation of secrets. It wasn't that I held Rain close to my heart or anything. It wasn't even that I particularly trusted him. Only that I recognized the pattern. Yeah. Yeah, the pattern. Yeah, the pat. That was my thought exactly. So yes, similar. The, the pattern, Victoria. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, th- this is not the first time Victoria has called back to uh, that bank scene, um, and it's very clear to us now that in Victoria's mind, the the bank heist was the moment of the start of everything that went wrong for her. Um, it was it was this splintering point where her life was ruined because secrets about Amy were revealed or, or I don't think the secrets themselves were revealed, but the fact that there were secrets was revealed and that damaged her relationship with Amy, which snowballed into what happened to her. Um, so this, that is the splintering point. And, and she is so wrapped up in that idea that she sees something that, okay, maybe, maybe is similar. Um, at least like geographically, there's someone standing in front of you about to reveal a secret, but that's a, it's a stretch. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I, I think it's, um, it's, it's worse than a stretch. It's, <laughs> it's, it's, um, it's a mental problem. I mean, it's, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's PTSD. It, yeah. We'll get into that in a bit, but that's, yeah. I mean, that's literally what it is. Yeah. Right. But yeah, we'll get into that in a second. So, uh, Ashley kind of notices her having this reaction and says, you've got that, you've got a look in your eyes. Ashley said fierce. I think that, I think that's terrain actually. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm sorry. You're yeah. right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, I pulled that out because this is a tiny little beat, but I really, really love it because as, as we've discussed in the last, in the last week, rain is not the same person he was last time he was around this team. He's done that 180. He's found strength and purpose in, I'm going to protect Aaron. I'm going to get Aaron out of here. I'm going to help her. And to do that, I need to be strong and I need to defeat the people coming after me. And Ashley, of all people, is the one that notices that change on him. And that's that's very um, in line with what we understand of Ashley at this point, that she is she notices things about people like she noticed how similar her and Victoria were. Um, she she kind of knows things she understands Kenzie on a certain level. And now we see she notices a change in rain here. And I think that's really, it's really great. Yeah. I think Ashley has a tremendous amount of struggle and pain inside her. And the things that we see her noticing and relating to and other people often have to do with their own struggle and their own pain. I think, yeah, that humanizes her a lot. and makes us like her and empathize with her a lot more. Yeah, no. Yeah. That's a that's a really good point. I completely agree. So here, um, Rain finally gradually meanders his way toward explaining what's going on. He's been hiding out with powerful capes, a family, a rather insular family, 
you know, taking forever to actually get to the point of saying it. But Victoria kind of puts it together, even though she doesn't want to. She specifically thinks, I could connect dots. I deliberately avoided doing so. Which, again, shows this level of awareness that she has, right? That she's, like, aware when she's deflecting and avoiding. Like, she's aware of it. Yeah, yeah. Kind of an interesting kind of metacognitive hyper controlling nature um i don't know how deep to go down that rabbit hole but probably a case to be made that a lot of the time a lot of the time we see her she's watching her thoughts she's not really she's not just thinking her thoughts she's watching herself think her thoughts yeah i mean and i think that ties into the warrior monk idea that it's Mm -hmm. not just about um externally showing that image of a completely calm collected warrior but it's even internally she she doesn't want to think the things that betray the warrior monkness she wants yeah. to be inside and outside that that monk and, and and it is actually you know from a samurai point of view or whatever like good to be detached from your emotions especially if you're in combat because it allows you to make the right decisions but the thing about victoria is i don't think she's really detached from her emotions she's just yeah it's complicated yeah, I don't, yeah, I wouldn't say she's detached from her emotions. I just think she's very deliberate in her her mind's eye and her mm-hmm. internal monologue. Yeah. So Kinsey and Sveta are the most over overtly put out by the revelation that that Rain is one of the fallen. Um, they're both aware that the fallen are prejudiced to the point of committing hate crimes against K-63s and against black people, respectively. Yeah, I don't know why that particular wrinkle of the fallen didn't occur to me until this point, but but Jesus, like that didn't even occur to me. And holy shit, like I was so focused on how Victoria would deal with this. I forgot about these two. Yeah, me too. And it's just kind of an extra thing for Rain that that Rain was worried about, right. you know, thinking that everyone would abandon him as soon as he told them. And I really love I love Kenzie's conversation to him after after he reveals this because she says they hate black people, don't they? And Rain's response is, well, they're, they're a big group. It's hard to get just into how varied the branches are, the different beliefs, how they add up, some of the leaders that have come and gone. It's hard to just point at them and say they hate this or they hate that. Most of them hate black people. Yeah. Did your family? Did you? Do you? And I think like that's structurally really great because she starts with this general statement he comes back with basically an excuse like 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 it's semantics the difference between they hate black people and most of them hate black people is really semantics like that's not what Kenzie meant. Kenzie was not saying 100 percent of these people hate black people. Right. That was not the intent of the question. Right, she right. drills down to the intent of the question, which is at the end. Did you do you? That's the intent of the question. And rain like deflects at first. But then as the question becomes more focused, he he takes it and he admits it. And I love how that is that is doled out to us, the reader. And I think the way Rain handles it does make us like him more because even though it, it hurts him, he's he's truthful with them. And then he's yeah, he, and then he tells them he's working on it. He, he admits that he, he catches himself falling into these old patterns of thought and it insists that he's working on it. And we know from being inside his head that he is. Yeah, and 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 this is why when we look at structure and we look at how information is doled out to us and in what order and in what way, I think 
we can see why this arc is structurally so great. And I think we'll get into that a little bit at the end of the podcast. But imagine this scene if we didn't know any of this stuff about Rain. Imagine this scene if the reveal to the rest of the group, the reveal to Victoria, was also a reveal to us. The result of that is we would, throughout the course of the scene, be 100% focused on Rain. We'd be saying, is he telling the truth? What else is he hiding? How much of this is lies? What is he on about? We'd be spending the entire scene trying to get to the bottom of Rain's reveal. But... By revealing basically, basically everything Rain is saying to the readers first, and then having the scene after that, Wildbo allows us to focus on the thing he wants us to focus on in this part, which is not Rain. What we want to focus on here is Kenzie, is Feta, and of course, Victoria. And we would not have gotten that. That would not have worked for us had the reveal been done in a different structural way. Yeah, that, that's a great point. Um... I think if anything, if we hadn't had these rain interludes, then we might even still be as suspicious of him as we were before we got them. Right. And we, we would have a very different reading on this whole chapter. So, yeah, it's very, very good that we that we structured it the way we did. Yeah. So next, uh, Sveta kind of gets her turn. She she tells the awful story of the K-53s, Pete and Fenn. Uh, who were, you know, horribly murdered for no reason by the Fallen. Despite being upset by all this, she mainly wants reassurance that Rain won't go back to the Fallen, but Rain can't give her that, and he says he has no choice. And we kind of, while Sveta may not believe it, we know that he really doesn't have any choice, does he? No, he doesn't. And we'll find out just how little choice he has in a little bit, but... Man, your heart really breaks for Sveta here, doesn't it? We, we've we seen Rain's situation, so we understand him. But she doesn't. Not not really. No. And I, I really like the idea that she, she calls out here. This idea that, no, Rain, you are not personally responsible for the actions of the Fallen as an organization. Not everything that they have done, you are responsible for. But if you continue to be with them, if you continue to lean on them, if you continue to use them... You become complicit in those things. You become a party to those bad things because you are you are implicitly supporting it. And I, f- I think that's very a very true and interesting interesting statement that that she said. It's it's true, but it it's almost it's almost still not respecting the difficulty of the situation that reigns in because it's like first of all, Sveta, do you actually understand that? If they don't kill him for leaving, then they'll just veil for him. Like it's it's such a it's such a hopeless situation to yeah. say like oh you should just not go back like oh okay yeah right like yeah. May, maybe that works in real life, not even necessarily when you have people who are willing to kill people who leave you know a cult for example, um, when you have Mama Mathers which we'll we'll get into obviously I, I don't know if you have hardly any hope really. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with that. And, and I agree that, that again, this is the differing perspectives. She cannot see the truth of his situation and he can't really see the truth of hers. So there's this this kind of central disconnect with them here. I mean, she, yeah. I, I think I think she makes a good point, but you are correct that if she understood the entire picture, then that point would be pretty dramatically different. Yeah, yeah. From her point of view, it makes sense. It's It's yeah. just like, man, it's. 
there's a reason why the fallen exist and have not only exist but survived the end of the world and if anything are growing now um yeah it's, it's that yeah. they it's not that easy yeah so it's it, like like i hinted to before we've talked a lot on this podcast about how interested we were in seeing how victoria would handle this reveal um because we we specifically spent time to set up the fact that Victoria does not like the fallen. She does not think the fallen are deserving of a second chance. And she goes out of her way to stop the fallen from recruiting someone with some vendetta. So we were like, yeah, let's see. Let's see how she take this, takes this. But we, we don't know what those personal issues that she has with the fallen are outside of they're bad. Um, we just know that they're bad and, and, and she doesn't like bad things. <laughs> She's a hero. Um, she is freaking out here, and we'll discuss that in a minute. And and a lot of her freaking out is because she's linking this scene and this bad news and these secret reveals to her trauma-filled, horrible past. She doesn't appear to have like something personal against the fallen here, but Kenzie does, and and Sveta does, and I think that's very very interesting as an examination of of what's going through Victoria right now. Yeah, yeah, I, I think you're right. Um, Victoria is making the connection to all this through sort of this um, traumatic, like almost metaphorical connection, but th- there is not a direct connection with the way there is with um, Kenzie right. and Sveta. Right, Kenzie is literally, they hate black people. I'm black. What, do you do you hate me? Sveta's is, they killed two of my kind, two of the people that I looked up to most in my worst moments of my life. Victoria's is this reminds me of this one thing that happened with my sister. Yeah. And which is not really not to not that similar. Yeah, and not to diminish that effect on Victoria that that is a she has issues and that makes sense, but it is much less personal and immediate um outside of her perspective. Yeah, right. And and I'm, I think we're going to get into that right now. So so interestingly interestingly Ashley is sort of taking point in this interaction. Um, she's sort of the one who's driving the conversation, actually. And she says, if you don't, if, if you won't say it, then I will. I'll guess. You killed people. Rain went very still. I could remember a similar look on my sister's face. And and just, the, like, again, the fact that she keeps connecting everything back to her sister, it bears mentioning that this is the definition, almost, of post-traumatic stress disorder. This is traumatic imagery and feelings spreading out like ooze to touch things that are not related to what's what the trauma was actually about it's it's this traumatic kind of you know ooze like bringing the baggage along with it poisoning unrelated interactions pulling every aspect of your life into this traumatic context until every conversation you have gets mapped onto whatever that other situation was even if it's really not related and and I, I want to clarify, like I've I've made a couple comments in this conversation that I think could be construed as me like ragging on Victoria for like for doing this. It's like no, 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 that's not what I'm trying to do. I, I'm I'm pointing out that she is in the grips of of post traumatic stress disorder, and um, it is really sad that this is happening. Yeah, uh, no. And and I'm not I'm not making fun of her for this. It's just I'm just pointing out that this is something that we really need to understand about this character is. She imports this into everything that happens. Absolutely. I think that's a really good point that, yeah, this is this is not us ragging on her. I, I would never do that to Victoria. She has been through so much, but it is important that we point it out. It is important that we 
we separate this from the kind of immediate reactions that the two other people are having. And, and I think this is this is why PTSD is so hard to to deal with, because like, h- how do you get past a thing when that thing, as you said, has seeped into every corner of your life that that even if something is not related at all, it still reminds you of the thing. And we saw this with Brian a little bit in Worm, and we're seeing it with, with Victoria here, that everything, everything is reminding her of her sister and the things that happened. Yeah, um, uh, unfortunately for Victoria, I think very often the uh, part of the solution is to actually face the thing that is the source of your trauma and yeah. thereby sort of desensitize yourself to it. Um, she doesn't, she's not even close to wanting to go there, though. No, no. We're building there, but yeah, she's a she's a long way away, I think. Yeah, right. Um, so so uh, Victoria finally interjects almost with a non sequitur. She says, "Your whole life, uh, my first time speaking in this conversation. Maybe I wasn't sure. I was in a different mode, um, and I, I like that. Just her pointing out that she's in a different mode. It's like, yeah, she's practically having a panic attack, or or at least like a flashback. She's just." gotten really good at not showing it to the extent that no one else notices what a hard time she's having yeah she's not aware of if she spoke before which is i mean that is that is a big deal and 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 it is the first time she spoke and this is very deliberate like because victoria has throughout this entire process tried to be that coach tried to be the one stepping back and letting other people talking and not interjecting unless she really felt like she had to just observe and report kind of but she can't do that here. She's kind of compelled to jump in as she heads down this this rabbit hole of trauma. And that's it's really sad. Yeah, definitely. Uh, we learned here that apparently Rain isn't really Rain's original name, but his full name now is Rain O'Fire Frazier. Um, and that his parents literally sold him to a different family. So his, his aunts and uncle are just fallen guardians. They're not related to him at all. So he does say that his cousin, like he did make a specific reference to the fact that his cousin was his actual cousin. So is the assumption there that she got sold as well? I'm not really sure. I'm not really sure about that. And I have a feeling we'll learn more. Like like later on in the next chapter, we see that he is blood related to a lot of these people. Yeah. Um. So it's just a question of like, I guess, I guess, you, I guess what's really happening is the family is just actually really big and sprawling and they tend to trade the kids around for convenience. Maybe that's, that's currently my interpretation, but I could be yeah. wrong. I, th- I think you're, you're probably right. I'm not okay. sure. Whether. So we have Victoria thinking from the bank robbery to the period after trying to find normal again, rain had been more open. Did that change the course of this particular river compared to the one I'd known or were the key elements all there still the discomfort, the I'm trying, but I'm not going to do anything different. Did it, did it still lead to disaster in the end? So this is this is her kind of this is the pattern that she's recognizing. I, right. I think kind of explicitly pointed out that she's she sees some in, in rain. She sees someone like her sister who is on a bad path and seemingly not willing to do what's necessary to avert the disaster at least from her point of view. And I think that's probably true. I just think she's overstating the comparison. Yeah. Um, it, it is interesting because like we have this, this whole conversation about 
second chances and and new fresh starts and learning and and she looks at the situation and says her instinct almost is to say that this is the same river we're going down the same river again um is this enough to change the flow are we doomed to repeat this 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 thing that happened with amy is this doomed to happen again and again and again and and rain is kind of now she's kind of positioned rain as the the test for that now which could could end up really bad because the 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 amount of things that are stacked against rain are are bigger than any of our characters know at this point and so i i worry that like she has decided that this is what happened with amy i am now linking rain to this thing if rain falls if rain fails if rain is swept back up in becoming that bad person that he was before does that prove to victoria that these kind of things are inescapable and and what does that mean and that's not that's not a good implication yeah yeah you're probably right about that it just occurred to me what a good thing is that rain had this conversation today rather than the next day because uh it would drastically change the what he would be able to say i think yeah i yeah completely agree so uh yeah there's a lot going on in terms of each of our misfit toys having their own reaction to this but I'm going to focus on the protagonist because she's the protagonist. Uh, we have this section here where Rain notices, uh, Victoria, you've been quiet. Yeah, I said. I was aware of the silence that followed my statement. Snag's army. They're after the fallen, I said. Yeah, Rain said. But they want you. Yeah, Rain said. His expression darkened as he said it. No illusions about what was in store for him if that happened. Because of the kids and the others you killed. Because they blame you. Yeah, Rain said. I nodded. I can tell you the details if... I'm going to go, I said, interrupting. I was aware of the looks I got. Tell Kinsey everything's cool. I'll be back. I just need to think on this. No actions out of instinct. I'd think, piece everything together. I flew away from the scene before I could say or do something I'd regret. Yeah, so I pulled this out because, again, we're seeing that she's so upset that she feels her only choice is basically leave immediately and awkwardly or do something she'll regret. Um, so it's like, yeah, that's the warrior monk again. But in this instance, even the cautious choice doesn't look very balanced from the outside. No, yeah, I agree, because it makes it look like she's just like losing her shit and has to get away right away. Yeah, um, it does once again show this common trait of hers which is the de-escalation we've talked about a few times before when when the going gets tough victoria says fuck this shit (laughs) (laughs) yeah which is very often a wise choice in this world yeah i yeah i agree i'm not necessarily saying that's a bad trait (laughs) right so later on crystal and victoria stand on a force field overlooking hollow point watching another small hero group do a patrol the simplicity of the picture good guys and bad guys soothes victoria yeah, this 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 desire to live in a world that is not so complicated, where good guys are good, bad guys are bad, and we don't we we don't have good guys keeping secrets about how they were formerly bad guys because they've been enslaved by a bad guy cult, and there's good people in the bad people, but they can't get out, and oh my god, it's so complicated. She just wants good versus evil, black and white. Right. And yeah. that's understandable. I mean, sometimes you get so swept up in the complicated nature of life that you just wish things were simple. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I want a hero who wasn't actually a clone of a Slaughterhouse Nine member. <laughs> 
So Crystal tells her that she's going back to the PRTCJ despite having taken a couple weeks off after the broken trigger incident. She shows concern for Victoria, but Victoria hand-wavingly reassures her. Yeah, but it's not it's not just that she reassures her. It's it's kind of how like I think so, I said, and then she says to herself, if this meant Cedar Point <laughs> on other stuff, less sure. Yeah. <laughs> it's like so yeah, the the thing, I mean, I I don't I don't think that's what Crystal was talking about. Like she wasn't mean like, are you cool with Cedar Point specifically? I think right. it was, are you cool with everything? Because she, this is when we learn that Crystal has not met any of the people that she's been with. I mean, again, I, we don't know how long it's been since she joined this group. I, I, as we said last week, I don't think it's been very long at all. It's been a, a week or so, but she has not introduced the people she knows to this group. She's kind of been keeping this off to the side, her own thing. And Crystal's just like, I, are you doing okay? <laughs> it's like, oh yeah, this with this specifically, as long as there are good guys and bad guys and we're driving out the bad guys with the good guys, that's good. Everything else? No. Yeah. No, but let's not talk about that right now. Yeah. Yeah. So, but I mean, it's not like she's doing nothing because they do now fly to meet Yamada, uh, mm-hmm. which is probably the best thing she could be doing. Uh-huh. So apparently Crystal likes Jessica for having talked to her about her horrible, horrible traumatic losses that apparently nobody else had ever talked to her about. Yeah, because we forgot that Crystal lost like her whole family too. Uh huh. Poor Crystal. <laughs> yeah, it's just that's, that's just normal for capes, though, Scott. Yeah, that's yeah. just like baseline. It's Ugh. not even not even worth talking about. Once again, we are living in a superhero world where I can earnestly say, superpowers, pass. Yeah, not worth it. No thanks. Nope. Yeah. So, um, they talked to. They talked, or yeah, uh, they talked to Jessica, and uh, Victoria and Yamana get around to talking about whether, uh, about whatever it is that Victoria figured out just last chapter, which was this kind of thing where the text kind of alludes to her putting something together, but we're not really sure what. And here they're sort of talking about it, but they're talking about they're talking in a circuitous way. Basically, all we really understand is that things aren't quite what they seem. There's something more going on than just a handful of troubled young capes. There's something sinister. Yeah, and I love how this ended up unfolding. You and I spent like five to ten minutes last last week trying to like piece together what we thought Victoria had discovered, like the, the reason why Yamada brought her here. And I think we probably overthought it a little bit. Um, we, we were kind of close, but I think we headed in the wrong direction we were looking at ways in which weld and victoria were similar when we should have been looking at which ways in which weld and victoria were different uh what what is the one trait that victoria has that might be useful when you suspect something really sinister as you put it um is going on in your group but you want it to be independently verified from an outside source uh one trait that victoria has displayed time and time again so far when it when it comes to the misfit toys and and everything and that answer, of course, is paranoia, is is Victoria's paranoia, uh-huh. her, her constant um, worry that something else is going on was was exactly what Yamada was hoping to get out of her to to determine and, and reinforce this worry that she had. And I just think that's really great. Yeah. Speaking of paranoia in the next chapter, we're going to have ample time to talk about how Victoria's paranoia has completely infected at least me as as the reader oh i can't wait matt it's gonna be good (laughs) speaking of which is it time 
Is it time to move on to chapter 4.c? All right, chapter 4.c, the final chapter of this arc. And we get the third cluster dream with Love Lost, which we've been looking forward to. And now that we're here, we wish we could just wake up, right? Yeah, I regret looking forward to this. This is one of those... (laughs) This is one of those chapters that just royally fucks you up in every single direction. Just coming at you from all sides. Yep. So, yeah, this dream is much more involved than the other two. There are more flashbacks to prior periods of her life, all centering around her interactions with her daughter. The first flashback is a dispute with what appears to be her husband. He's leaving because Love Lost is failing to live live up to his ultimatums. And it's left rather ambiguous who is in the right here exactly. Probably nobody. Mm-hmm. Uh, and their daughter, Everly, Everlyn, um, both you know, both names are, are correct, walks in on the argument. Yeah, it, I like this because it's very clear that Love Lost, at, at, this, at this point in the story, has been a shitty mother. Um, she, she's working really hard, and she's trying to find that balance, but she's clearly failing. But also, her husband just like decides to leave because of that. Like, we don't get a clear indication if he main- maintains a relationship with his daughter after he leaves. In fact, I think a later part of this these dreams will reinforce that perhaps he doesn't, that he's just gone from her life. So it's kind of like him going, hey, you're being a really shitty mom, and I can't take it, so now I'm going to be a sh- shitty dad. Yeah, that was sort of my take, actually, was that, like, he he is doing the giving you accusing looks to make you feel like you're crazy and it's all your fault while mm-hmm. I actually just want to get out of leave. the situation. Yeah. Almost a little bit gaslighty, but I don't know if I can fully support that interpretation. Um, but I definitely got a bad vibe off the, off the dad. Um, and it does, it does at least seem like love lost is functionally a single mother throughout yeah. many of these later flashbacks. Yeah. So that's, that's not cool. No, not at all. Yeah. Um, I love, as as we go through the early part of this chapter, we establish this this shouting beat that we continue throughout these dreams. Um, considering we know what Love Lost's power ends up being, this is very deliberate. Um, she, the first thing Everly says to them is, you're shouting. And her father says, no, I'm not. But but Love Lost is. And then we have this this moment of she didn't shout but the words reverberated and echoed down the hallway and through the house as if she'd voiced them with a megaphone and that is that is a a stylistic choice that we're making to reinforce how her power is going to manifest itself yeah yeah no that that is really cool and there are there are lots of very subtle ways that unfortunately i don't think we're gonna draw too much attention to here but many subtle ways that these these different flashbacks different parts of the dream kind of reflect on each other and have elements that that blend into each other so that it does feel yeah. it does feel dreamlike it's not just a flashback it's every every flashback is a bit distorted um and, and dreamlike yeah yeah you're absolutely right that and a lot of time it's sound that is used to connect those two scenes together the sounds transition from the sound in the one scene to what that is in the other scene a love loss crying transforms into the cries of the people during the trigger event her scream transitions to a scream coming from the television set um these are these are different distinct moments but they're bled together using sound um and and that 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 shows that in this woman's mind it's all connected it's all together it's all part of the same thing um and that makes it even worse yeah no yeah definitely 
So the husband leaves her, and the scene dissolves into the chaos of the attack and the trigger event. Lovelost tries to hold her daughter, who's now older, as the crowd crushes against them, and a collapse of stacked tables leads her daughter leads to her daughter being struck hard in the face, apparently hard enough to kill her. Ugh, this is let's just move. I don't want to talk about this. Let's, yeah, let's, let's move on. Yeah, it's, it's pretty horrible. It's awful. Um, yeah. So the the second discreet flashback is an incident where Love Lost is profoundly frustrated with her daughter, but then discovers a booklet that the daughter has drawn. And that there's so much going on in the scene. Like there's so much really subtle displays of the relationship between the two of them and her frustration and her problems. Like as a parent, I'm sure you can relate to you being tired at the end of a long day and your kids just being really loud and you just want, you just want quiet things. Yeah. I mean, I'm pro- I probably had this exact interaction where I'm like, <laughs> I just need a minute. And then I like see some beautiful, I love you daddy style note. And I'm like, yeah, melt, you know, um, and, I, and I love, yeah, yeah. I love what she reads in the book. Right. I love like the red haired wizard once had a teacher, but he was gone, which is what makes me think that her father is just out of her life now. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just there was only the knight who had raised her up, who had red hair like her. The knight detected crimes and was always very tired and very grumpy. So I guess this is a hint that Love Lost was possibly like a police detective or something. Yeah, um, that, that that was her job. I think you may be right, because like she talks about the, you know, the the requirements of the job being uh, something that keeps her out at all hours and like there's various interpretations of what that could be but uh being a detective would certainly be one that that uh makes sense Mm -hmm. so that's that's cool um yeah that that, that's that's a cool connection i like that yeah um here we have uh, this moment love lost vision blurred slightly and she paged through the lead-in to the book took a long time and the confrontation at the end was brief as the demon was slain Love Lost looked away at a small collection of empty bottles on the counter, tucked behind the microwave and the wall, set out of reach. Um, and that's that's basically just the the empty bottles. I think are are implicating um, either a drug or alcohol, uh, e- either problem or perhaps prescription medications that she needs because she's kind of having a hard time. All of this, regardless of how you interpret that is establishing love lost as being pretty like worn ragged as, as a single parent, having a lot of her own problems that she's dealing with and getting frustrated with her daughter, but also loving her immensely. Yeah. There's also a a reference to it, the stem of a wine glass randomly thrown in there. So I think there is some sort of alcohol issue here. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I love that, that like we're, we're developing this character as complicated. Yeah. She has all these, She's had all these issues. She's trying to raise her kid and she does love her. She does love her kids so much. We take this time. We take this time to, to, to show her visceral reaction to reading this book. Like she walks into her kid's room and says, and says our line, Matt, she says our line. She says, I love this. Yeah. (laughs) Pressing the book against her heart. Evelyn smiled. You do. I love everything about it. There are parts I, I was worried you wouldn't like. I love it all. And that's so heartwarming and sweet even though you know what's freaking coming next. I know. It's it's just horrifying. Yeah. So she promises they'll go shopping and get Everlyn the kind of scarf that she really wanted. And this is one another transition moment here because we, we transition here back to the, the death. Um, 
And I think this is a really clever use of it because the scene ends with her promising to go to the mall and get her a scarf. We're going to go shopping. We're going to get you a scarf. And we know, Matt, that this is not the mall trip that gets Everlyn killed. We know that because she's way too young in here. She's like 12 when she ends up dying. She's like five here or something. She's too young. It's not the time. We know this. And yet I couldn't help think, oh, no, don't go shopping. Don't go there. That's where that's where you're going to die. And I think that connection is not just made by us. I think that connection is made by Love Loss herself. This connection between this moment of we're going to go to the store and get you something and a store at the mall in a public place shopping is where I lost you. Yeah, I mean, and that is certainly the kind of dream logic that you can imagine happening in an actual dream. Makes sense. Yeah, yeah. So like you said, we were then subjected to the same scene of her daughter's death again, which lets us know that not only does she... Not only is she forced to relive relive this every night, but she's forced to relive it several times a night. Uh, yeah, so then the next flashback is a tremendously harrowing scene, which bothered the hell out of me, which was the mother and daughter sitting on a park bench as the world rumbles and flares with golden light in the distance. People run in scattered aimless panic, and we we know immediately this is the end of the world, and all Love Lost can think about is how she's wasted so much time. Yeah, and she's like, do you want to get ice cream? And her daughter can't understand, and it's this harrowing, like, I mean, I think the book, the the this, the scene with the book messed me up more, but yeah, this was, this was rough. Um, yeah. And, and I think what this does is we see that she's already had to face in her past losing her daughter before. Um, there's no textual support for this, but like logically, if you think about it, being prepared to die as she was in this moment, and then living, surviving the end of the world, only to then have your daughter ripped away from you anyway, that's got to make it 20 times worse. We survived the apocalypse, and I still lost you. Yeah, yeah, that occurred to me too, that that like, she she must feel so robbed, like insult to injury. After you lose the whole world, you think you got through it all right, or you you think you kept what was most important, and then you still you still lose that thing later. Um, I think it's just yeah. like the total hopelessness of this of this like sitting there on gold morning and expecting to die. That's that's what got to me. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So she she hugs her daughter, and then the dream blends back into the stampede and her daughter's death again. And then we and the the text says the view of gold morning had been the third of seven scenes, all punctuated by the same repeated event. Dear God. So, yeah, we get approximately seven repetitions of that horrible thing. And then in, in the Pentagon, Love Lost just glares her hate at Rain. Yeah, uh, understandably so. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, so I this entire dream, I, I loved it all. It's my favorite of the three dreams. It's fantastically written. It's complex. Um, and and I, I like that we kind of subvert expectations here a little bit because in both of the other two dreams, we get to see a little bit of a hint of love loss yelling at her kid before all hell broke loose. Like there's a specific beat where like her kid shows up and she's late and her mom is annoyed with her and she's yelling at her. And there's a tendency when you see things like that in the book to jump to conclusions and attach meaning to that. So like you go, okay, she was a shitty impatient mother. She was terrible and she was mean to her kid. And and you, you, you go like 20 steps ahead to, to jump to this conclusion. And then we open up this dream section and 
we have a beginning that almost reinforces that. We have her husband telling her off and then we go kind of internally. Yeah, that makes sense. Remember, this was the lady that was yelling at her daughter in the mall. Um, she sucks. And then after that, we completely switch things up and completely redefine and recontextualize her. And and it's, it's a structural trick, I think, to make the moment land harder. You kind of feed into an assumption and then subvert it, which makes you go, oh, shit, I, I jumped to conclusions here. Um, and it it makes the beat of her being just just an imperfect but but truly loving mother and i think that just makes it all the more tragic yeah definitely i agree completely um so we we actually just sort of skip out of this dream directly to the scene where um rain is you know has been telling his tale to the misfit toys and mm-hmm. victoria flies away from the team so now from Rain's point of view, we're seeing how that how the rest of the situation unfolds. The other toys gather around him, and Rain finds himself asking if Victoria has ever killed anyone. It comes up that Kenzie is the only person present who allegedly hasn't. Uh, Chris did kill somebody accidentally, apparently. Uh, so, of course, I can't help but point out that Victoria participated in the fight that saw the end of Mannequin and Crawler, but I don't really feel like splitting hairs about that. I mean, I don't think Victoria racks up a body count for got spit on by acid guy while a Bakuda bomb was dropped <laughs> on everyone. I don't think I don't think that goes as as kill for Victoria. It's probably fair. Yeah. So I'm going to do this thing that I promised I wouldn't do too much right now. I'm going to compare things back to Worm again. Okay. Because this is our opening team. This is this is the first team we've seen our protagonists interact with. So the natural comparison would be is to compare this to the Undersiders. And on the Undersiders... We knew that two people, at the beginning of the story at least, were murderers. We knew that. And that was a big deal. Remember this reveal to Taylor that two of these people that you're allying yourself with are murderers. And now we have the Misfit Toys. (laughs) And they're handing out murderers like Oprah hands out cars. Yeah. And I think this comparison here works because I think it highlights how different the stakes are now. How different things are at the beginning of this world versus the beginning of the last one. Um, we've seen our team like attempt to play that cops and robbers game in, in word in, 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 in worm rather. And we're kind of seeing it again here, become heroes, take out the villains, like do this thing. But, but these guys are so much more hardcore than that team was before. Um, and the undersiders are pretty hardcore at the start, but these guys are much more deadly, much more dangerous. It's, it's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. And, and just more unstable, which is saying something. Yeah, yeah. Before we move on from this, though, I want to talk about Rain's decision to ask that question, though. The decision to say, has Victoria murdered anyone? He's, he's, he's processing this thing, and that's the first thing that kind of just falls out of, of his mouth. And I think I really like that because this is such a human thing to do, right? Like, you've just admitted this this failure, this weakness in yourself. He's murdered people. He's maimed people. Children. Victoria has just flown the fuck out of there. <laughs> and we'll learn later, he says a little bit later, that Victoria is the person he was hoping the most he could get on his side. Um, and he, and he's, so he's desperately searching for a way to parse and understand the guilt that he's feeling about both doing these things and then having to, to come clean with them to his team. And he's searching for something to make him feel better. And Matt, when you screw up, when you feel guilty about something, 
a very human thing to do is search for other people who have made that same mistake. Like if I fail a test in class, but I learn that almost everyone else in the class failed it too, I feel a little bit better. I didn't fail. We did. I'm not a screw up. We all are. And that's very comforting in a in a messed up kind of way. And I think that's what Rain's looking for here. Yeah, he's like, you know, I'm I'm only human. Um and and I think he may feel, you know, judged by the fact that she basically runs away from right how how you know what a monster he is that, that that's his perception of it um and then she's I, I think you're i think you're actually exactly right and i think i was i was not reading the situation that way but i think this is the correct read because what, what i was reading it is like he was like why is she so perturbed i wonder if this talk of killing people is reminding her of some horrible things she did but i don't think that's true i think what's happening is he he is interpreting her running away as like, oh, she's judging me. Well, I mean, I wonder if she's ever been responsible for anyone's death. Yeah. Like you said, trying to find some justification, I guess. I mean, he, he's... And commonality. Yeah, commonality. Yeah. N- not really justification. Just just common ground. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So Rain now mentioned that his current plan is to surround their HQ with deadly traps. <laughs> And then Chris says he can help with the ones that have to be put on the walls because he's going to he's going to go the anxiety route for a few days. So he'll be literally crawling up the walls, Yeah. <laughs> which, again, I think reminds us that out of all of our misfit toys, Chris is the one we focused on the least so far. And he's the most um, of, a, of a mystery to us. And we keep getting little little tidbits of juicy information like this. It's like, oh, I'm going to be anxious for the next few days. I'll literally be climbing on the walls so I can check them out for you. Yeah, no, I'm I'm really looking forward to seeing more of his forms. <laughs> um, so Tristan is not too happy with this plan to booby trap their base. He can't really bring himself to make the point he wants to make, so he swaps out with Byron. Yeah, and this, by the way, Matt is is the exact moment that this group needs Coach Victoria here. Like, I I appreciate her taking off in situations where she feels her presence would just escalate things or or ruin that warrior monk persona. But she's kind of just abandoned them here in this crucial moment. They need their coach. And Tristan basically says that. She basically says, shit, out of the four of us, it's supposed to be up to me to make the moral argument. Right. It's funny. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Uh, So. um, Yeah, right. So, So Byron doesn't have a problem with the traps, but he reiterates that he's not cool with the team idea. And he says the shitty part of the idea, the thing that worries me. It's the idea that the worst things might bubble to the surface and get in the way of being of this being genuine or good. Tr- Chris is talking about Kinsey making components or alerts for traps that are going to potentially maim. No, that's really not right. So he's emphasizing that if Rain is going to to take this ser- to take serious lethal measures, then he should do that apart from the team, which has kids on it. And he says, "Let them be heroes, be a hero with the team, with that other stuff being secondary." Yeah, and I'm really curious about your interpretation of all this, because I do think the text here is using Byron to confirm a lot of the fears that Victoria and Jessica and, well, us um, have had about the idea of this group from the beginning. Byron also almost serves in this moment as kind of the audience surrogate, because he has been watching this all from an outside perspective the whole time. He's been external to all this and just kind of watching and observing. And he has some pretty, pretty spot on gems here too. I really like when he says, 
I'm estimating that the team started from a place of healing and support. If this is going to work out at all, and I really don't think it is, sorry, Tristan, it needs to hold on to that. It needs to hold on to that that kernel of place of healing and supporting each other. And moving to traps that maim and kill is not doing that. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Byron is so uh, suspiciously um, uh, <laughs> even-handed about all this. Stop it. Stop it. <laughs> we'll get to that in a bit. Uh, so, yeah. So, Rain wishes he could leave Aaron here with them. Um, basically wants to kidnap her, but he doesn't. <laughs> and Good job, buddy. Yeah. Although, you really do understand his thinking here. Oh, yeah. Oh, so there's, yeah. there's a nice beat where Byron gives control back to Tristan, but Tristan says he needs more time to think and willingly hands over the rest of his time. Yeah, which is the second time we've seen this happen now, Matt. The first was around... Uh, when Moonsong showed up back in the warden's headquarters, that he basically gave up his time again, which we have never seen that happen in the reverse way so far. Yeah, that's true. And I can think of, you know, that just being because we don't see Byron that much in the team context. Sure. But yeah, it is interesting sure. to point out. Yeah. So Byron, Rain, and Aaron now get in the car to drive to drive Byron back to the train station. Byron points out that Rain didn't tell them about the room, which implies that he has told Tristan about it. Yeah, yeah. But um, it, as as honest and upfront as Rain has been during this whole process, yes, he did not fill um, everyone in on, on the whole story. He left out the room. He left out the trigger event itself. He left out what he did specifically to these people. He said, yeah, I've murdered people. I've maimed children. Um, but I'm not going to go into the details of what I did to these people yet. Right. Um, he, he says, uh, I spent all of last night watching someone have the one person they cared about most in the world get torn from them over and over again. Then I saw the aftermath hurting Aaron would be the one way they could do that to me. I guess I do. So he's, uh, he's communicating to the audience that, um, Aaron is the best way to hurt him. So that's good. Yeah. I hope no one's listening to that little tidbit. Yeah. Great. (laughs) Um, so rain talks more about Aaron, just further cementing their relationship as this tender, complicated thing that we, that we just appreciate so much. Yeah, I really, I really love it. I love their complex relationship that is is more than just the silly, silly teenager crush than I thought it was. Right. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely a puppy love component, yeah. but it's it's in this in this you know star-crossed situation that just makes it so much more compelling. Right. Yeah. So, so Rain admits that the concepts of the room incentivize um, the cluster killing each other and. If he lets the team know that he has this incentive to kill his cluster, then they might think he's trying to kill his cluster in order to become stronger, which is not really true. He's really just trying to survive. Yeah, but he does say that the thought has crossed his mind. He does say that he's considered that before. Yeah, which is, I mean, honestly, I think that's just natural. Yeah, yeah. So after the talk, Byron leaves in a way that I find ominous but cannot explain why. Don't at me. Matt, Matt, Uh we, we have a podcast where we explain things. You can't just not explain something. All right. So I just feel like Byron opened the car door. He put a hand on Rain's shoulder, <laughs> brief, as he made his exit from the vehicle. He crossed paths with Aaron, who was returning, accepted a chocolate bar from her, and disappeared around the corner. Oh, when you read it in the most ominous it's, fucking voice of all time. You know, it could be perfectly innocent. 
or the most foreboding thing in the world, depending on the, like the camera angles you choose, or the music you put on it, or yes, the voice you read it in. Like like imagine a shot showing like Rain watching Byron walk away, like over the steering wheel, intercut with Byron taking the chocolate bar, and then the camera lingering on the corner where Byron vanishes for a couple of frames too long. Oh my god! Oh my god! By- Byron is ominous. <laughs> he just likes chocolate, man. He freaks me out, man. Just likes chocolate. I don't understand. Like, she, Aaron goes to buy snacks, and he leaves, and he gives his friend a pat on the shoulder, and then takes a chocolate bar. We created a Twitter poll about whether or not Byron is creepy, and I believe <laughs> and I'm the winning. I believe the result was that Byron is not creepy why is it it's not loading it was that he was about 20 percent creepy okay (laughs) look i absolutely agree with you that there is something going on with byron that is a lot more complicated than i'm just a chill dude that doesn't really worry too much about stuff but i don't i don't think this scene in particular comforting his friend and then eating a candy bar is indicative of some some ominous foreshadowing so Leaving aside whether or not I'm joking about this, <laughs> um, I will say that this was about the point when I noticed how paranoid I was being about literally everything that that my brain had chosen to turn the chocolate bar scene into something super ominous because I'm I'm looking for knives in the shadows. Uh, chocolate bar scene. The the infamous chocolate bar scene. Um so so yeah, like like this is the degree to which Victoria's paranoia has infected me, apparently. Right, and especially at a point where we are like just told that there's something more sinister going on in the group. So yeah. now like we had this thing where in in arc 3 we were kind of like inspecting each member of the group as we learned about them and we're like, "Oh, I don't know. I'll look at all these red flags." And then throughout the course of the early part of this arc, we, we kind of got to understand them a little more and, and, and maybe even got a little comfortable with them. And then all of a sudden there's this bombshell. It's like, no, actually things are even worse than we thought. And now you're, you're kind of right back into that paranoia where you're like chocolate, huh? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You understand. I I understand. I don't think you're right. (laughs) We'll see Scott. So yeah. Rain, uh, Aaron comes and gets back in the car and they drive. Rain falls asleep in the back, eating a pile of candy. And then he wakes up as the car pulls into the fallen settlement uh, past the gate decorated with abandon all hope ye who enter here, uh, which of course is the is the um, inscription over the gates of hell for those of us who aren't familiar. Uh, and they're greeted by seven fallen capes who bring Rain to talk to the leadership. They escort him with implied threat of violence as he drags his feet. Uh, sorry, if he drags his feet, and he does not drag his feet. No, he does not. Um, I, I really like how the opening part of this scene manages to set up the tone of the rest of this this chapter. Because, yeah, I mean, abandon all hope ye who enter here is, is a little on the nose, but it's hilarious how true that is for outsiders as well as for Rain, right? And then... Um, we see Rain leave Aaron behind here. Aaron, who has just like done something very dangerous and 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 could get her into a lot of trouble, he leaves her alone. And not only does he leave her alone, he hopes that she doesn't have to come with him. Please, please let 
Aaron go, please not make her come with me. And that establishes right away that meeting meeting the leadership is not going to be good. Yeah, right. I'd like to point out that it's seven demons, like the seven deadly sins, etc., yeah. that that lead him to meet the leader of hell, as it were. So we're getting very, you know, literary here. Rain is being brought to meet the devil, basically. Yeah. By the yeah. demons. Yeah. Um, and one of the demons eats grape candy. That's right. Talk about think, that. <laughs> well, like, the, I, I, I don't have a lot to say other than the this this the the griminess of it like it's like it's grape uh like fruit snacks basically it seems so they're like sticky and like it you can you can kind of visualize like this big guy with a gross what kind of head does he have again horse he has a horse head on it's all like twisted and stitched up weird Right, and he's shoveling these sticky candies into his mouth that take a while to chew, and just like this very visceral thing that happens to kind of assert how little shit he gives about either of these people. Yeah, I, I just whenever I hear about like artificially flavored grape candy, I remember that in organic chemistry lab, we literally synthesized the compound that they put in that candy that gives it that smell from like petroleum products, basically. It's terrifying. Yeah, so just yeah basically made that smell from from oil never eating fruit snacks again that's probably a good choice (laughs) uh so they reach the house and uh, it seems like some kind of meeting is in progress there are six senior fallen with demonic cape masks uh as in cape made masks that look like mutant animals in the house rain can trace his family connection to both the leadership and to the beaten down servant girls which of course means that there's a good chance that Rain is indeed his own grandpa. <laughs> I think we can assume so. Seer walks Rain upstairs into the creepy, creepy house, and they run into Lachlan, who's just chilling out, brushing his teeth, <laughs> uh, which I like has the subtle implication that he lives here. Yeah. Um, and he's like, hey, man, did you talk to Allie? Uh, which is great because it's just completely jarring in this like horrifying like horror setting. Uh, it makes us realize that Lachlan is a bit off, and we're going to understand why that is shortly. Yeah, yeah. I, you're absolutely right that that we learn why that is, but I want to talk about how well this is set up. And, and, and when I th- say things like Wild Bo would make a damn good screenwriter, it's for stuff like this. Because so much of the skill in the prose here is 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 the ability to convey story and world through images. I mean, not like literally images, because they're just words on a paper, but you know what I mean. Yeah. Like, because... We have Rain, like, terrified that Aaron would have to go as well. We see all the other teenage guards stop at the fence. They won't even go in. They won't even get close. They stop at the fence. We go upstairs and leave behind the scene of people in horror masks casually eating snacks around a, a living room. And then we juxtapose that with Lachlan brushing his teeth. And yeah. it's something so mundane and so normal that it immediately clashes with all this tension we've been building up. And 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 that gets us to that point exactly where you put out, that there's something not right about Lachlan. There's something not like a, a guy standing there in what I imagine is PJs right. <laughs> with a toothbrush in his mouth as words filled with tension is like the perfect way to drive home exactly that thought that, Something is wrong with this kid. Yeah. And he's just hanging out here. And, and even now, Seer like stops at the top of the stairs, basically, and is like 
you know, sends Rain the rest of the way down the hall. He won't even go yeah. down the hall with him to the door. Yeah. Because nobody wants to, I mean, the implication, I guess, is nobody wants to actually have to be in contact with Mama Mathers. Which makes a lot of sense once you realize what her power is. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, Rain walks down that hallway to Mama Mather's room. And uh, when he opens the door, she she appears and she stands over him and questions him. Uh, or so we think at first. Um, she's she's kind of grilling him on what he's been doing, where he's been, uh, on his, his loyalty, um, and kind of reminding him of his place. And, and I, I, this this is particularly chilling here where she says uh um the hair so she had told him to grow his hair long uh, because he caught her attention and she says the hair is to remind you that if you won't be a soldier for the families we'll have you be a slut we'll get children out of you if you fail at that if they're sickly or disobedient we'll geld you like we would any of the farm animals um and this yeah. is said in like an ethereal haunting tone and it's so like it, it's so interesting when you when you think about the one of the things we've talked about on this podcast a lot, which is um, one of the things Victoria notices is how you present yourself to the world is a is a definition of who you are. And we learned that one of Rain's most prominent features, which is his long hair, is something that was not his decision. Like he 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 has no control over how he presents himself to the world. And that's like that that complete lack of control and that complete lack of um individuality amongst any of these people is shocking yeah yeah it, it just highlights the dehumanizing sorts of yeah. tactics that this cult uses yeah so yeah um he dutifully defends his aunt and uncle to <laughs> to mama he promises he'll figure out how to be a good soldier for her he tells her that he needs to kill his cluster which you know is nice because now we know that like his that that mission is actually consistent between the two lives that he's trying to lead. So at least he has that, which is unfortunate for him because it's the most violent and well, terrible yeah. thing that we could want. But but it also like we just had a conversation with Byron where he said, I don't want them to think I'm going I, I'm going to kill my cluster to get more powerful. And now he's just said, Mama, I'm going to kill my cluster to get more powerful. Right. And he's like caught between these two worlds. And yeah, there it's it's they're dealing with the same problem, but in two seemingly diametrically opposed ways. And which way he's going to end up with is, is, the, is the thing is the big uh, plot point that is going to come out of this. Yeah. Yeah. Either way he's incentivized to kill his cluster. So, well, yeah, yeah. I mean, true, right. but yeah. So she tells him that she'll be watching and only then do we realize that in fact, mama is still in bed. She stands and tells him to look at her. And when he does, uh, it's like her presence fills his psyche. Everything I said to you before now, it came from within you. I saw and heard much of it, she said. So I like this because we're, we're, we aren't really sure how her power works. Like, what can she see? What can't she? Um, like, how, how does this work exactly? How, how is she how is she getting this information out of him? And it puts us in the yeah. same frame of mind as her victims who also probably don't know what she can see and what she can't and, and what's going to summon her. And so they police themselves basically. She, yeah. It's, yeah, it, it's a good reflection of like the ultimate control of a cult. Right? right. I mean, that's like, that's what this power is so fascinating. It's like, I will be there. I will see 
and hear everything you do and but we but but will they like like misinformation is one of the the most powerful tools a cult can have yeah that's true it also reminds me of this idea of like um you know the best way to control people is to tell them that like god is watching their thoughts and he's going to punish you for sinful thoughts not just sinful actions and so you become the perfect servant because you police yourself and um, you know, so she goes on to say, every time you think of me or mention me, I will be there. I will know where you are and see what you are doing. I will take stock and I will make my judgments. You will think of me while saying your prayers or waking uh, on waking and on retiring, kneeling by your bed before each meal. So basically she is taking the role of God, right? She's, yeah. she, she, she you know, literally when you pray, when, when you give thanks for your meal, um, I, I am sitting in, in, and she uses the word judgment, which is, which is the, the role of God. So like she has supplanted God in this community, basically. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and of course in, in classic parahuman sense, it's made literal that literally when she thinks of her, when he prays to her, she will appear there. Yeah. She will be there looking at him. Yeah. So it's, it's a panopticon inside your own head. And uh, I guess Kinsey only wishes that she could be this invasive. <laughs> So on his way out, he runs into Elijah. Oh, who's that? We'll we'll see. First, this wonderful bit. Elijah held a bowl of water with a sponge floating it in it in the crook of one arm. He had a slight smile on his face, barely visible through the long white dyed hair he had. Um, Give him mama a sponge bath. Yep, and looking forward to it. Loves it. <laughs> so I, I didn't get it until like six minutes after I finished reading the chapter. But yeah, this is Veil 4, which is so mm-hmm. awesome. Such a wonderful, you know, connection. Um, for, freaking freaking Taylor, man. I know. Either finish the job off, or <laughs> you made it worse. So what you're saying, Scott, <laughs> is he should have cut his throat. No, I'm not no? saying that. Okay. No. I'm not right, saying fine. that. I'll get you one of these days. <laughs> so we learn... Um, that his power changed to give his voice the command power that his eyes used to have, uh, or at least a version of it. And he says, I fixed it myself after getting powers, looked myself in the eye, mirror right in front of me, and I told myself to enjoy it, to like it, my own mother mere thought away, to be loyal. And uh, so that's why that that kind of explains a lot about Vale 4. Yeah, it does. And he also confirms that he's the reason Lachlan is the way he is. Yeah, poor kid. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Good job, Wildo. You made us feel sympathetic for Vale Four. <laughs> <sighs> oh my god! Never ends. Yeah. So now Rain leaves and vomits up all the disgusting petroleum candy, and then he goes to his workshop because that's the only place he's going to be able to reach before his timer goes off. I think, but Aaron is already there, and as he kind of protests, she rests his head in her lap and holds him with Mama's ghost standing over them as the cluster dreams come on. Uh, so this is his day, right? I think like this should be his dream, I believe. Yes. Yes. Which is just the best. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, this is horrifying. Absolutely horrifying. I love, I love the, the, the religious imagery though. I think you're absolutely right that, that we, we lean hard into the, the demons and the hell and the gods. It's, it's it's so well done and fascinating in a I'm gonna lose sleep kind of way. Uh-huh. It's just a perfect way to end 
this arc. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's. Inc- I almost I almost wanted to spend more time on ju- just the part where he's entering this Dante's Inferno hell, and and pick out every possible you know interpretation. I, I think almost like yeah, we could do that, but I, I would just encourage the, the, the you know the listeners and, and the readers to to read that read that part again and understand like how it's chock full of those references and they're definitely right. there. They're definitely references, but they're not, they're not overt or distracting. They're, they're just um, there to create the correct tone. I think mainly. Yeah. I think you're right. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. So that is four dot C and that is arc four. Yeah. So, so let's talk about this, Matt. Let's, we'll, we'll wrap this thing up. We got, we got 12 whole minutes left. <laughs> All right. So we'll wrap this thing up and uh, let's talk about arc four as a whole. Okay. Um, this was a really interesting arc to me, Matt. We did not have a big action set piece at all. We only had two like physical confrontations and they were both very short. We had rain getting his ass kicked and then Victoria and Sveta basically making quick work of, of hook, line and sink. Um, so in- instead we look at this as just one long character study. And if we look at the arc holistically, we see, it, but we basically do two to three chapters and then rain and then two more chapters and then rain. And then, and we continue on. Uh, we do that three times. And, and I think there, there was something that we kind of skipped over that Byron talked about um, when he was comparing what rain is going through to what the rest of the misfit toys are doing. And it's this idea of costumes and names, this idea of costumes and names where these guys are working on imminent death and crazy cult people he's working on so we're we're juxtaposing that we have two arcs where like our characters have problems i'm not going to take away the problems but they are focused on what they're going to name each other and and what their costumes are going to look like and what the team name is going to look like and then we jump to these rain chapters that is just like holy shit this is terrible this guy is trapped what can he do is there any hope for him at all? And that is that juxtaposition is huge. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I, I love the I love the structure of this arc. It, it's it's unique in terms of all the parahuman stories that we that we have at this point, where we're we're repeatedly coming back to the same interlude character um, to to sort of make a counterpoint to the arc. I, I, I like that this persisted, and I like that it had this triple structure of him you know, going into the dreams of each of his, his cluster yeah. mates. Um, and then, and then, um, having some other parallels throughout the, um, throughout the, uh, the main chapter, I, I think uh, I'm going to let you talk about that. Cause you're the one who kind of pulled out the, the parallels actually. Yeah. Yeah. So like, I think, I think as much as I like Victoria's story and I like the things that happened with all of our misfit toys, the, the meat, I guess, of the arc is these rain interludes. They're literally like throwing shade <laughs> on everything else that's happening. And we so so if we look at them, if we break them down, we have rain witnessing three memory dreams corresponding to the three days in which his enemies are more powerful. They get worse each time. We start with snag and that's pretty terrible. Then we go cradle and that's bad. And then we go love loss and that's like, holy shit, devastating. Um, 
And I think it's fun to dive into what happens to Rain in these chapters and compare that to his experience in the room when it's those person's day. So that's what I'm going to do here. Go for it. So first, Rain deals with Snag's day, and Snag basically ignores him. They all kind of ignore him on on his day, right? Like, he tries to call out to them, he tries to say things to him, and they don't really say anything back. Um, And then Rain wakes up, and he's basically ignored by all the members of his family, right? We, we even pointed that out at the time. I just hadn't, hadn't drawn the connection to this whole thing yet. Um, his uncle ignores him. His aunt kind of observes him very coldly. His, his cousin ignores him. The other girls that are in the house kind of ignore him. The only one that really pays attention to him is Aaron. And then a little bit later, the misfit toys, but he's, he's basically, basically in a, in a place in his life where most people ignore him or, or don't, don't, approach him or deal with him right yeah follow yeah and then next is cradle and and cradle doesn't ignore rain (laughs) definitely not cradle directly confronts him that's kill yourself over and over again kill yourself kill yourself and what happens to rain in the rest of that chapter he sees direct confrontation he walks up to his uncle and gets his ass kicked intentionally um so we have direct confrontation mirroring direct confrontation and then finally, we have Love Loss. Love Loss doesn't ignore Rain. She doesn't directly confront him either. She just, she just looks at him. She mm-hmm. just glares at him. She just sees him. And in this chapter, Rain is confronted by Mama, a person that literally appears and sees him and his thoughts and, and everything he's doing every single time he thinks about her, a person who sees him. And... And it's a nice little poetic kind of three beat here um, where we have the reflection of of how they're being treated in that world to how their day goes and how they're being treated in that day. And it makes me very, very, very interested in what Rain's day looks like. Yeah. Yeah, me too. I, I am uh, really want to get to what that's going to be like. Yeah. Um. Yeah. And the, it, it, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just I was I was waffling because I was like sw- slipping back into we've got worm mode of having actually read the next two chapters and being like, oh, did I just slip my hand? But no, I didn't. You cheated. I haven't read the next two chapters. I know, but that's because your superpower is restraint, Scott. <laughs> um. So I mentioned what I thought my my interpretation of the arc title was of what shade was. I'm interested if you have a differing one. What you what you thought of that? Um, I think it's just it's just like an encroaching um, darkness. You know, it's a yeah. it's a threat. You know, there's I I like I I've, I've liked all of these ward um, arc titles because they're fairly open to interpretation and you can make all sorts of interpretations in retrospect i mean okay so we we have the the shade of you know the fallen the shade of hell uh you know the the darkness of being disconnected from um from god's light as uh, as dante would would have it yeah um you know it, it, it obviously rain is a big is a big focus in this chapter yeah, um, you you could kind of go on and on about it, but I'm I'm I don't think there's one interpretation. I think that's kind of what I'm getting at. No, and I, I think you're right, and and that's the like I had an easier time coming up with a clear 
the clear intent behind the arc titles in Worm. Um, I felt like they a lot of times they were very, very um, obvious and, and logical as far as what they mean. I mean, like Cell is one where Taylor literally spends the entire arc like trapped in inside uh, the PRT headquarters. Um, yeah. And these are definitely a little more abstract. It's almost it's almost less important what it specifically means for the arc and more important to see the trend over the course of the arcs like shade means more in reference to what the the earlier ones were because we're going to a place of darkness and and we're, we're going to continue there in the next arc which is shadow which is which is even more darkness and even more encroaching uh, uh being robbed of of the light yeah yeah okay uh, so the last thing i wanted sorry go ahead no no you go ahead. No, 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 I was the last thing i wanted to talk about uh arc wide is the pacing. I wanted to talk to you about what do you think we're, we're four arcs into the story now. Um, what, what is your general thought of the pacing? Because I've been seeing a lot of kind of rumbling in different places about how, um, some people have called it slow. Some people have called it like that something needs to happen. And I, and I wanted to get, get your opinion on this. Um, I mean, I don't, I don't agree with, with, uh, first of all, first of all, I don't agree that it's slow. I think that people may have forgotten what it's like to keep up with a web serial, frankly. Um, yeah. Because when you're reading it week by week, like e- each of these chapters is a absolute buffet of things happening. They're just not always like a giant cape fight. Uh, there's always something interesting, some little character change, something interesting happening in each of the chapters that's released and of course each arc is is many chapters and um when you if you if you actually walk through the synopsis of the story up to this point from you know glowworm on so much has happened and so much has changed maybe not as much as changed in worm when we got to this point in the story but this is not trying to be the same kind of story so if if your criterion of saying that this story is slow is that it's slower than worm then i suppose that's true um but this is trying to do something very different and i really appreciate what it's trying to do Mm -hmm. um and and i still reject the idea that it's that it's slow it's just like yeah you read you can't just sit down and and binge through it so you're going to perceive it as being slow i don't know well and and there's this there's this interesting idea that that slow the word slow is inherently a negative thing Mm -hmm. like if i if i substitute the word deliberate suddenly it becomes it has a whole nother meaning i think this story so far has been very focused on what it wants to do which is explore these characters yeah i think things are going to ramp up i think the pace is going to speed up but right now we are focusing on understanding and learning these characters and we've taken a, a good amount of time to do it. And and I think you're absolutely right that the problem is when you start comparing it to worm, when you start saying what was happening in worm at this arc, like I feel like when we get to arc eight of ward, there's going to be a lot of people that are like, where's the giant fish monster to fight? Where's that happening? And it's just, it's just not, it's, it's not the same kind of story. And I do think that arc five is going to be an arc that will have a lot of action in it. I think we have been building to that. I think we've been, been building to this boil over point, but a boil over point doesn't work if it comes so fast that there's not 
any time to build that tension and to see things go and, and to understand our characters. We need to understand these people. They're all complex. They're all uniquely complex. And we need to take that that time. And if we don't, when we get into to shit going crazy, we're not going to care about it as much. Right. I mean, I guarantee you I care more about Rain at this point than I cared about any non-Taylor character by the end of arc four of worm. I mean, I don't even have to think about that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that is my answer to that question. I agree. Okay. So overall arc four intense character study, intense exploration of all of our characters with a focus on rain, obviously. Um, I, it was great. It was great. I love the structure. I love how it was doled out to us. I love the, how it started, to the point where it ended. I went back and, and reread over our scripts for all four of the parts of this, uh, this arc today. And I, I really liked it. Yeah. It's like a hundred pages. <laughs> I know it's longer than you think. Yeah. It's like, Oh, I was like, Oh, I'll just, I don't know if I have time to read the entire arc again. Let me just read our scripts. And I was like, Oh, it's probably like the same. It's the same length. Yeah. It probably is the same length. Well, <laughs> So that's arc four. Yeah, that's all right. arc four shade in the can. Alrighty. So so name game very briefly. Um, we got Dido today, um, which I didn't know this, Scott, but you informed me that Dido was the first queen of Carthage, according to Greek and Roman myth. Yeah, and she killed herself. All right. Because <laughs> she was married to someone who died, and then her city was basically forcing her to marry someone else, and instead she burned she climbed on type of a ceremonial pyre and she and she stabbed herself <laughs> okay. and then became a god and then the Carthaginian Carthaginians worshiped her well so i don't know what that means for our character because we don't know much about her yet but let's keep that stuff in mind yeah. when we learn more about dido pay attention maybe something with fire anyway yeah. carthago delinda asked everybody um <laughs> so discussion questions uh for this week um so we we collaborated on this one. So we now have a better understanding of the fallen. And the question is, can any of these people be rescued or redeemed? Can rain? That's a very interesting question, Matt. And I'm glad that I don't have to answer that. Yes, me too. I can't wait to, to get all your answers. And then I'll know what the answer is. I don't have to worry about yeah. it anymore. I'll just parse all the answers and pick the ones I agree with and yeah. say that's that that's my thought too. Yeah. These questions are going to get harder and harder and more abstract until we're like, how would you structure society? <laughs> what is your solution to everything? Yeah. Hunger. Yeah. Yes. So that's all we got for you this week on we've got ward. Remember that you guys are all part of the show now, so feel free to provide us with advice, questions, or thoughts on this week's reading. You can reach out to us via email at gotwormpod at gmail.com or on Twitter at gotwormpod. My personal Twitter is at scottdaily85 and Matt's is at more dailymail. <laughs> That's good. So if you're not already subscribed to We've Got Ward, we strongly recommend you do so and never miss an episode. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, Google Play, and pretty much anywhere else in the world you can listen to podcasts. And as always, you can find this, all the other podcasts we do, and all of our writing, essays, film, and TV criticism, and more at dailyplanetfilms.com. This week, over on the main feed, I'm joined by Michael and Daniel to discuss the new sci-fi film Annihilation, which Matt has not seen yet. I know. Um, this episode did get a little heated because 
Michael is wrong, mm-hmm. but uh, I think it turned out pretty good. I, I really can't wait for you to see this this movie, Matt. I'm gonna I'm gonna enjoy talking over this movie with you for for a long time. Yeah, particularly because we did the book for book club. It would be nice to have yeah. that conversation. Yeah, yeah. Also on Friday, um, a new episode of Vow to View drops, where Elise and I force each other to watch some of our favorite Oscar winning movies. Um, if you haven't checked out that show yet, please please give it a shot. I, I might be a little biased, but I really enjoy recording it. It's ridiculous. And I think it's fun to listen to. It is really fun to listen to. Um, it's it's a it's a hit actually. <laughs> um, yeah, if you like any of our shows and you want to support them, consider donating to our Patreon account, Patreon.com/slash/DailyPlanetFilms. You can donate a dollar a month or whatever else you can afford. Special thanks to new Captain Planet Frederick at the ten dollar level and Planeteer Andy at the one dollar level. Uh, thanks so much, guys. As always, make sure you go over to Wildbo's page and donate to him as well. This is his world. We're just playing on it. And if you can't afford to donate right now, that's absolutely okay. You can still help us out in a bunch of other ways. Um, You can, like, tell your mama about We've Got Ward so that every time that anyone thinks about it, she'll appear floating above them being all creepy, probably with chocolate. Or you can head on over to iTunes and leave a rating and review. You can be like Ruben, who gives us five stars and says, As a longtime Wildbow fan, I was intrigued by the idea of a podcast about my favorite novel. Matt and Scott have completely blown my expectations away with their incredible literary analysis of this world and its characters. When I first read this book, I simply enjoyed it for the story. But on my second read, the character ground, a discussion of the universe and its multitude of themes, conflicts, and story have brought out a new life from the text I would have never seen otherwise. It's funny, strange, that... Before listening to Scott and Matt, I didn't really think of the characters in this book as people, just interesting devices and a fun plot. But that change in my perspective has shown me power that real literature can have. Seeing the world through completely different characters' perspectives has helped me even in my daily life to think about things that people say and do not do not just for and do not just do it from my own perspective, but also try to emulate theirs as well. Thanks so much, guys. Wow, Matt. Daily Planet Productions, changing lives seven seven days a week. All right, that's okay. Okay, three days, three yeah, days a week, three days a week. Maybe we'll build up to seven. Yeah, I mean that's the goal, right? Yeah, I mean it's right there in the name, daily, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, thanks so much, Ruben. We we really appreciate that. I, I'm glad you're enjoying us, but I'm even more glad that you're enjoying the full the full power of story and narrative, because that's what, that's what it can do for you. Uh, Roger Ebert said that movies are an empathy machine. And I absolutely think that books are the same thing. So they're really stories are the greatest thing in the world. Yeah. I don't often get all philosophical about it, but I I really think stories are important in a way that we don't talk about enough as a society. Agree. All right. That's it for the show this week. Next week, we will jump into arc five shadow. It's going to be a long episode because we're going to have four whole chapters to cover, but I think that's just what you guys expect these days, huh? Well, see you next week. Bye-bye.